it's been a couple of weeks. I was on vacation and Heather's mom was here. And uh, now I finally have a good, good time, chance to podcast. A lot of socializing, a lot of eating, drinking, hotels. Had a party Friday night, made a beef stew. And I think it's the best one I ever made because when I was going shopping, supermarket, I saw a couple packages of oxtail. I don't know if you guys eat oxtail soup, you get oxtail anywhere. I love oxtail. And usually it's beef stew. I've done it with lamb. I've done it with goat before, but I decided to make it with oxtail and beef. And oxtail, you know, when you cook it long enough and it's tender and it falls off the bone, you know, with the onions and the leeks and the olive oil and the herbs and the butter, uh, it was just so good. And uh, people really liked it. Hold on. Shit. Babe, I'm doing a podcast. Anyway, Stu was excellent, well-received, good, had some leftovers. and uh, But anyway, I'm, I'm able to podcast now. A couple of things. I was thinking about the podcast in terms of a livelihood, and people were generous early. I haven't gotten a lot of contributions lately. That's okay. I mean, I, would, I like it when people contribute. As I've said, it's a, a vote of confidence. And I know that a subscription model is easier. Just not even... There's going to be better technology soon where you can just stream sats from your online wallet and you can, you know, pay a couple bucks in sats when you listen to a podcast or something you find interesting. But now we're still in the credit card world and I've been too inept to figure out how to get the uh, BTC pay server up on the site and I'm still working on that, but I'm just, you know, I'm 50. I'm not good at that kind of shit, but I will get it. I will get it at some point. But you got this credit card world where you got to put in your credit card info and it's a real pain in the ass with Stripe. They even take a piece of it, like 4%. Take a lot. It's, it's not the most efficient way to do it. And renewing is easier for people because you put it in, you renew, and you're like, okay, I'm cool with giving five bucks a month or whatever. But I'm, you know, selfish because I don't want you to renew because I don't want to owe you work. I just took out, you know, I took like a couple of weeks off. Uh, but I just don't want to feel, you know, pressured like I owe something. I, I've talked about that. But my way of doing it now is just very inefficient because like, I mean, come on, people like the podcast, but they're not going to get their credit card out every month or two and just it's it's a pain in the ass so it's not an ideal situation love the contributions if you haven't contributed yet and you listen often and you can afford it it's a nice thing to do it gives it a vote of confidence i also feel like this has only been a couple months since i've done this solo and and left rotowire and so i'm still figuring out what this is right like is this just a vehicle for me is it an actual business i don't know yet but i, I but i was thinking about it a little bit because I see all these people online, they have big followings and they tweet out stuff and they have these kind of, it's almost formulaic, like, oh, well, do this kind of tweet, you do that kind of tweet, then you follow up with uh, go and like my thing and, and here's my book and here's my latest podcast or whatever. And they're in sort of promote professional promotional mode, I would say. And obviously it works because they have big followings and I assume they're making a living on it. But, it, you know, and they start shilling for certain products and stuff and they're selling, you know, something. And I, and I do think that like, if you want to make money being a content provider, the way to do it would be give people information that makes them money, helps them lose weight, helps them get laid, paid or laid and losing weight probably helps you get laid. But, you know, stuff like that, you know, stuff that can give you more status, influence, better looks, uh, more sex, more money basically is what people will pay for and they'll keep paying for it. You, you, you sell that to them. And, you know, I, I've had people uh, DM me and say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I appreciate that I got into Bitcoin after listening 
you guys talk about it on the podcast, Dalton and me a couple of years ago or last year or whatever. But the thing is like, I'm not saying you got to go buy this. You're going to make money. I believe in it. But if it goes down, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not responsible. Therefore, if it goes up, I'm, I don't deserve the credit. It's your decision. I try to talk about stuff that I find interesting and, and that I believe in that I find useful. But ultimately, you're the one who made money if you bought Bitcoin because you decided that that information was valid or interesting or worth a shot. And if it went up, that's on you. And if it went down, that's on you. It's not on me. I'm just um, talking about what occurs to me. So it's not the kind of podcast that you're giving money to learn something that's going to directly benefit you in that way. And in fact, I kind of feel like most of that stuff is crap. There's some narrowly useful things about health or about making money on certain podcasts that may be useful, but I would not want to sell this podcast is, oh, listen to this and you'll have more money or more status. In fact, it may be the opposite with status because if your mind is more open and you uh, believe some things that are not permissible to believe around your peers, you may lose status. You may be a pariah once that lid is open and, and you can't unsee what you've seen. So I'm just trying to tell the truth as best I see it. And so it, it may not be a business. It may be a business. It may not be a business. I don't know. I've, I've thought about it. it this is just the, the early iteration of it. it may turn into something else completely. For now, I'm just talking and writing. That's basically what all I'm doing. It would be nice to have contributions, but I understand given the way it's set up, it's not ideal. And that's on me, right? If you're a content creator and you want people to contribute money to your work, it's on you to make it easy and seamless. And I haven't done that. So that's my own issue. So you can do it, but I haven't made it quite as easy as I should. And that's just where that stands. I also feel like, you know, the whole Steve Jobs, don't give people what they want, give them what they don't yet know they want. Uh, it's kind of like the truth, not that I have a monopoly on truth, but I'm going to try to find out what's true and say what I think is true and come up with ideas that I believe are useful. That sometimes, you know, that thing may not help you in the short term. It may not be useful ever, actually, but it may, in retrospect, be useful. So I, I kind of feel like maybe this thing that I'm building is, is it's more of a long-term thing. It's not like, you know, throw out a couple of podcasts and, oh, this is going to win you your league. This is going to win you the whole thing. I don't, I don't even know if I'm going to do like the whole football thing, the survivor and being the book. I don't know. I'm not, I'm on the fence about that, whether I want to still do that charge for it, not charge. For it. I don't know. I'm, I'm still thinking about it. I had a, one of the guys, uh, this Portuguese guy, uh, interesting dude, cause he's born in Mozambique which was a Portuguese colony and he lived, he grew up there and then he went back to, uh, to Lisbon later. And he told me he's an engineer and he told me that he would do a bunch of work for a few years and then take six months off every three years after saving a little bit of money. And then after six months, get another job. And it's funny because like six months, like no one in the U S just takes six months, maybe between high school and college or something, but not when you're an adult. And I'm only two months in, you know, so I've you know, who the hell knows where this is going to go. So anyway, I found, I found that interesting and I don't know what form it'll take eventually. So in the meantime, if you can overcome the barriers to co contributing that I've set up, uh, I appreciate that. I like the, uh, the comments on iTunes and uh, spread of the word. Uh, if you find it useful that there is no barrier. That is one thing I've definitely done, right? There's no paywall. You can spread it easily. It's on most of the platforms. And I think I'm going to get it on Google this week. I finally got the feed cut off from the, the old site for Google. It, it obviously has been on iTunes and Spotify for a while. And I think this week you'll be able to get the new podcast on Google. 
All right, that's it. That's just a little bit of housekeeping. Let's talk about the big news today. Elon Musk, it looks like he has closed the deal to buy Twitter. And I have sort of mixed uh, feelings about this. You know, it, it feels to me like, you know, we were just in a, an era and Twitter, Twitter is the most important social media, in my opinion. It's where politicians are. It's where heads of state are. It's where, you know, the most powerful people in the world are. It's where the journalists are. Twitter is the most important, more important than Facebook or Instagram. Instagram is important for like creative professions, but I really think Twitter is the most important social media by far. And for the last couple of years, probably more all the way through Russiagate, you know, we've just had censorship and it's gotten worse since Jack Dorsey left. But even with Jack Dorsey, they deplatformed Trump, love or hate Trump. He should be allowed to be on Twitter. And it's been like sort of a nightmare. And now we're sort of awakening from this ostensibly because Elon Musk says he's pro free speech and people will be able to not be censored. I, I just found out the other day by some followers I had that I'm shadow banned, that, you know, my tweets don't show up for everybody. And some people are like, oh, I thought you hadn't tweeted in a couple of weeks and they had to actually search for me to find it. So, you know, I'm not on the, I haven't been suspended or anything, but I've been shadow banned and a lot of people have. And there's always the threat of that deterring people from telling the truth. And this has been horrible for the last couple of years. And it's great to see that somebody seems ostensibly, we'll see, to be committed to free speech. And this is going to be great for the information ecosystem. We're going to, truth is going to come out more. Maybe we'll see, you know, what happens, but I, that's what I expect. And that's good. But it feels weirdly very much like when Obama got elected. I remember in 2008, I was so happy that the Bush administration and then it was John McCain who had Sarah Palin. I was so happy that those people were vanquished and that we had this new hope and change. First black president guy just seemed smart. He seemed like a, a guy, like a regular guy, the way he spoke wasn't like a stuffy, full of shit politician. He seemed like, this is great. This is amazing. I volunteered for the guy, donated to the guy. I made phone calls. I went to these phone bank things and, and volunteered. And I have to say, like, it was one of the most disappointing things. I, I've really never believed in a politician since. I guess I donated to Bernie in 2016 just so he could prevent Hillary from winning. But Obama, I really, I, it's, I, I was duped. I thought he was the real deal. And, you know, he we droned all those people in all those countries. We destabilized Libya and Syria. And there's more concentration of wealth than ever uh, when he was president. They let all the corporate mergers happen. And it really, you know, healthcare was, uh, Obamacare was the signature thing, but, you know, my health insurance went double. And so it was good that they insured some extra people, but it, was, it wasn't like being paid for by you know, the insurance company stock all went through the roof and it was, it was people like me that were paying a hell of a lot more. And I still didn't want to get an MRI on my ankle because it would cost me like 2,500 out of pocket way before my deductible kicked in. I was paying a thousand a month for worthless insurance. I mean, it was just a huge giveaway to insurance companies. So that was a huge, huge disappointment. And, but it seemed it was packaged so well. It was like, wow, this is going to be such a positive change from the last eight years. And he was better than Bush. I mean, Bush was Bush or Biden. I don't know who's worse, but Bush was probably the most terrible president we've had. We'll see. Biden probably won't make it to the finish line. But anyway, um, it was a huge disappointment. And I kind of getting the same vibe. Like everyone's like, oh, Elon Musk is going to save social media, save Twitter. And, and I hope that's true. And I want to believe that's true. But power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. It's a lot of power for him. And, you know, what is his agenda? Who did he have to, what horse trading did he have to do behind the scenes to get Twitter to capitulate? Like what political 
strings were pulled. What's the cost of this? Not just the cost in billions, 43 billion for Twitter, but what's the, what was the cost? So uh, we'll find out. And I hope Elon Musk is on the level, but I think it's much wiser to assume, at least be very cautious, not to assume the worst, but to be very wary and cautious of this. Again, it's like that vibe, 2008, we're elated. Everything's going to get better. And it wasn't exactly what we thought. So, all right, cautiously optimistic. Can't be worse. Well, I guess it could be worse, but it's not likely to be worse than the prior regime. As I said, I'm shadow banned. I, I don't know if now if today I'm not, but truly, truly sick ideologues are running this show. And now hopefully we can just have some open dialogue, a, a marketplace for ideas, so to speak. And what's truly sick is a lot of these journalists uh, who have been advocating for censorship, which is just should be the opposite of what a journalist should ever do, are aghast that Elon Musk is is taking our, oh, I'm going to leave Twitter. Oh, no, you're going to leave Twitter. If you leave Twitter, how is somebody going to get the uh, the canned regime-approved narrative? How am I going to find out what the oligarchy wants me to think if you leave Twitter? Oh, no. That's just kind of funny, but kind of appalling, like how much they relied on censorship. And I saw somebody tweeted out, you know, one of these, Karen's that doesn't want information to come out said, uh-oh, all the misinformation about vaccines and, and COVID is going to come out now. This is going to be a disaster. The guy quote tweeted him and said, they're not worried about being censored because nobody's going to censor him. You can say whatever you want. Positive shill for Pfizer all you want. Just like my mention said, so many people shilling for Pfizer telling me, get boosted, get fact, get boosted. No one censored them. No one's going to censor them. That's fine. You're not, they're not worried about being censored. You know, other people are like, uh-oh, these authoritarians who don't want free speech to prevail are going to censor me. And that actually happened. I got shadow banned. People got suspended, got shadow banned way worse than me. But okay, that actually happened. But the, the people who are in favor of censorship aren't worried about being censored. You think, uh-oh, my ideological enemy is taking over. He's going to censor me. And then I won't be able to have a voice. That's not what they're worried about. What they're worried about is people they were able to censor successfully through the prior regime will now be uncensored. They're not worried about being censored. They're worried about being challenged. That's what the tweeter said. I should give credit, but I don't remember which tweet it was. But they're not worried about being censored. They're worried about being challenged. But challenge is good. That's what the marketplace of ideas is. It's competition for ideas. And I'm not going to say that the, the correct idea always wins, but at least it has the best chance to win when it's uncensored. And the idea that comports most with reality, that has the most value in reality, will should win. Uh, so I'm cautiously optimistic, but but I do have a little bit of that Ob Obama presidency vibe, and that makes me a little nervous. And I wrote a I wrote a couple of pieces. One was just compiling all the uh, COVID fraud information in one place. So that's on chrysalis.com. Check it out. And then I wrote a piece called Belief. And I've, I've talked about the fixation of belief by Charles Peirce, the 19th century philosopher before. I know that I had a podcast called The Fixation of Belief. But just to uh, refresh, Peirce basically argued that uncertainty or doubt, he calls it doubt, having a doubt, not like I doubt this, but a, a sense of doubt, a sense of uncertainty is, is uncomfortable. It's unpleasant. It's a dissatisfaction. And just like an itch calls out for a scratch, a doubt calls out for some relief. And that relief is a belief, right? If I had a doubt, now I believe something in place of the doubt, I have some certainty, I feel better. That's just the mechanism by which we operate. And, you know, if, if I were ever myself in doubt of this, of this theory, of this idea, definitely 
was cleared up by my former job. People want to know which players start. Well, they don't know that you're going to give them the right advice. They just want an answer from somebody. So their anxiety about who to start is resolved. doesn't mean that it's going to be right. They weren't really interested in it. They're hoping that it's right, but they know that you might be wrong. They know that it's a tough call between two players. And yet they ask you because your authority as a fantasy expert gives them the resolve once you've made the call. The more extreme examples on chances to win. We took uh, calls on the SiriusXM show, chances to win. Monday Night Football, there's one game left. People would have, I'm down 20. I've got these two players. He's got nobody. What are my chances to win? And there were more calls on this segment than anything else we did. And maybe more than anything else on the channel, we couldn't even get to them. The, the calls would just overflow. And on Twitter, it would overflow also. And what are they doing? They're trying to get a number that they know I'm making up on the spot, a percentage likelihood to win to assuage their uncertainty about what their chances are for four hours until the game starts, for six hours until the game starts, for one week of fantasy football. These people were lining up to get their doubts about their odds of winning the week in fantasy football based on what was going to happen in the Monday night game. They wanted those doubts resolved, so they lined up just to get that taken care of uh, every single week. And as I said, the calls would overflow. So this was a, to me, they wanted to fixate a belief, a percentage, a quantity, quantification of their anxiety and it was powerful it actually worked just a very minor doubt like am i going to win or am i going to lose tonight in fantasy football was enough to motivate them well imagine something like religion imagine something like the meaning of life where you're going to go after you die the origin of the universe how you should raise your kids the best way to live a moral and decent life religion religious beliefs are they're extreme forms of this doubt resolution. I mean, the existential angst of not knowing what happens when you die, when you're going to die, what's going to happen to you, what's going to happen to your family, the people you love, you don't know. And there's a huge amount of existential angst based on that, especially in an uncertain time, but pretty much human history has mostly been uncertain. And religion just serves this massive, massive role in fixating belief, in assuaging these doubts and making us feel a lot better. You've got this horrible cavernous uncertainty in your soul and now you believe in jesus or muhammad or judaism and i'm not even saying that's wrong i'm not i'm not taking a position on whether it's right or wrong i'm just saying this answer to your uncertainty is has a massive function it's very important your worldview your entire worldview puts a, a salve on the gaping wound of your uncertainty that's religion. But, you know, in, in 2022 in the West, people are religious, they're Catholic or Jewish or Muslim or whatever, but a lot of people are secularized. They, it's not like the firmest pillar of their worldview is based on whether they're Jewish or Catholic. A lot of people, the firmest pillars of their worldview, the things upon which their beliefs rest are mostly just tribal, political, economic, social, what people around you think. People identify as, oh, I'm a good guy. I'm a, you know, I voted for the right people. I, um, I support the right causes. I believe the right things. I believe in the right medicines. And this has become people's identity, their sort of religion, the thing that they identify as what's true, what, who they are, what their worldview is. And so just like a religion serves as this massive, massive, I want to say Band-Aid, but it's more than a Band-Aid, you know, a massive, massive salve, a massive placation of this enormous doubt 
Well, now people's identities that serve as that are, well, that, you know, the, the Democrats are the good guys or, or, or obviously we're, we need to take the vaccine. It's going to make us safe. And oh, we need to uh, wear our mask because that's very important. These are the religious beliefs. Now, this is what's taken the place of religion for a lot of people. There's still people who believe in the old fashioned religion. And so if you show up and you say, you know, I don't really believe in this. I don't think the masks work. And I am dubious of whether my risk reward pro profile or certain people's risk reward profile makes it beneficial to take the vaccine, certainly after they've already gotten COVID. Um, is this a good decision? If you're questioning those things, that is a problem. It's not a problem if you're a crazy raving lunatic, but if you seem reasonably prosperous, have other views that make quite a bit of sense to people, they really don't like seeing that you disagree with these sort of fundamental, I'd almost call them religious level beliefs, these religious level doubt resolutions, these, these religious level doubt resolvers that are so important to their worldview. They have two choices, right? Because if, if, if they see a reasonable, healthy looking, reasonably successful person with different beliefs than them, they can either question their own beliefs and be like, oh, what if he's right and I'm wrong, right? That, what if he's right? I should look into what he's thinking. He seems like a reasonable person. Let's look at his reasoning, his arguments, his data, his evidence. But that's tough because if, to, if, if I even might be right, then while you're even looking into it, you have a lot of anxiety because all these things that you were sure of that undergirded your whole worldview and assuaged your doubts and your existential angst are now in question. They're, they're under scrutiny just by even entertaining that I could be right or that so-and-so could be right. might not be me. Uh, that's not something most people are willing to endure. They, they want to keep their religion intact and people have gone to war to keep their religion intact. There's crusades where people went to kill the other people that didn't have the same religion. I mean, it's very, very important to keep these doubts, this angst resolved. So if you have kept your angst resolved over the years with this belief system, and now somebody else who seems like not that crazy normally is challenging it, you can upend your worldview and look and say, maybe he's right. And that's what, to me, the open-minded, mature person does. They suffer the pain of maybe I'm wrong. My whole worldview doesn't necessarily depend on the specific thing. Let me look into this. But most people are not willing to do that. Most people are like, fuck that guy. Fuck him for spreading these horrible lies that are killing people. That's how they feel. They genuinely feel that. Because if you're not really willing to suffer the discomfort, and they're not, then they have to destroy you. They have to just, they have to show that this other person is an idiot, is an evil person, is a selfish grifter trying to make money off it somehow. As I just said, I don't really make much money off of this podcast, but they have to, I've, I've been accused of that because like, oh, he must be doing it for some reason, right? That why would he do this evil? So they have to destroy you. And the thing is most people, and this goes with it, they think they're good people and they certainly want to think they're good people. So they can't be like, I'm just going to kill that guy because he disagrees with me because they would, that's not a good reason to kill somebody. They have to, they have to have a good reason. They have to do it in self-defense, right? Everybody believes, most people believe I'm not going to kill some random guy who disagrees with me, but if that random guy tries to kill me, then I will destroy him in self-defense. So the way they justify killing you or destroying you, annihilating you is they have to create, and, I, and they don't do this consciously. It's just their brain that conjures it up and they feel it they have to conjure up a grave offense that you've committed against them. So when they read your tweet that says, you know, I'm, I'm not masking or I don't, you know, the masking seems super creepy to me outside. It's not scientific or whatever. They feel such anger and revulsion 
And they just think this guy is so evil and so selfish. He won't even put on his fucking mask. He's killing people. They, they feel the offense. You're killing people. And that justifies them trying to annihilate you. They're not going to physically annihilate you, but they can destroy your reputation. They can lie about you. They can try to get you fired from your job and all these things people did try to do. Your existence, your views are a problem. They're going to shut you up and excommunicate you. Make sure you are not taken seriously. This is how crazy it's gotten. These people, the religion is not religion as it used to be. And we know how dangerous religion can be if people become fanatical. Um, but the religion is you have to take Pfizer's latest product. You have to take it. If you, if you even say, look, I, I think people should be allowed to choose. You're an anti-vaxxer. Even me saying, I think it's their choice. I think people should take it if they want to take it. Their research shows that it's a good cost benefit decision and they should absolutely not take it out of peer pressure or something else. If it's a bad cost benefit decision, you should take medicine. If there's a good medical reason to take it, you should absolutely never take medicine. If there is not a good medical reason to take it because people are forcing you because people are pressuring you because you can get on an airplane because you can travel. Those are very bad reasons to take medicine. But anyway, that's my opinion that it should be somebody's choice. And just that opinion that I don't think you should be forced to take Pfizer's latest or coerced or that you shouldn't have to wear a mask if you don't want to, that is enough to say you're evil, you're killing people. That's the grave offense they need to try to destroy you. And that's how crazy it is. They will literally make up that you're killing people. Really? Show me some evidence that I've killed somebody. Show me that how my tweet has killed people. There is no evidence, obviously, of that. That's an absurd, absurd thing to believe that my tweet killed somebody. But the, the reason they said that was because that extreme expression, this is killing people, is really the only language strong enough to match the emotion they were feeling. But the emotion they were feeling wasn't because they love people. They don't love people. They're willing to destroy you just because you have a different view. The reason they're feeling so much emotion is because that emotion is tied up in their belief that assuages their existential soul-crushing angst of what the hell is going on? I'm a human being. This is my religion. It is their religion. So when you threaten their religion, threaten the underpinnings of their religion, they are going to be very upset by that. And they're going to ascribe it to you're killing people when obviously you're not killing people by having a conversation or having a different view. Once you realize that, that this is not coming from oh, they really are dumb enough to think you're killing somebody with a tweet, but that they are stemming uncertainty with these beliefs in a time that's unsettling, right? This is a, a time of huge change, whatever you want to call the pandemic, financial dislocation, the, the lockdowns, this sort of erosion of trust in institutions. The ecosystem is so polarized. People don't even agree on basic premises anymore. This is a stressful time. So their worldviews, their beliefs are even more emotionally fraught. They need them even more than usual. Uh, and so when you understand that that's what they're defending, their seemingly insane behavior makes a lot more sense. But what you realize is, oh, these are desperate people, right? They're not really, they're trying to kill you. They're trying to destroy you, kill your reputation, not literally kill you. They're trying to destroy you, excommunicate you, hurt you financially, harm you. But it's actually not personal to you as much as it's just their own desperation. They're just showing you, hey, my beliefs are fragile and you're fucking with them. You are messing with the only thing that makes me able to function. I, you know, I'm, I'm holding on to dear life. I'm holding on for dear life here. And not only that, but will, you know, I take my beliefs from my friends and my peers and I'm, I'm, I'm a warrior on behalf of them. I'm going to destroy you, not just for myself, but for these other people who also agree with me. 
sign. It's just like a religious crusade. And the tell is the tell for a crusade versus, hey, I don't agree with you. I think that's wrong. Explain to me why you think that, which is a totally different proposition, is that for them, for the crusader, the end justifies the means, right? Like the end for the crusade is the glory of God. It's the triumph of what's good and true and right and must be. And the alternative is that the world is plunged into darkness. And by darkness, in this case, I mean the deep, unfathomable, soul-destroying doubt from which they seek relief, from which they draw these beliefs. So for them, to, to eradicate the scourge of disinformation or your view on the vaccine or your view just on the right for people to choose to have a view on the vaccine um, is so strong that they're willing to lie about you. They're willing to ascribe things to you that you never said. They're willing to exaggerate what you said. They're willing to put you in groups. Oh, you're QAnon. Oh, really? You're uh, a right winger. You're uh, a fascist. Like all these things they will say about you. They're self-evidently not true and not based on anything you've actually said, or they won't actually address the claims you're making, the specific claims you're making, because they don't feel they have to. The, the end, which is to destroy you and your dangerous thoughts that make them so emotionally unnerved, everything's justified. If they have to get you fired from your job, it's justified. So the difference between someone like that and somebody who disagrees and wants to have a discussion or wants to persuade you of something is you may have beliefs also that, that are everybody's beliefs are there to assuage some sort of doubt. And you're emotionally probably attached to them too. You, you don't, you you believe what you believe too. And it does fill a need, even if it's a, not as strong as a religious belief, you, you still have a belief. And when you see people have views that, you know, are smart, that go against your belief, it causes you the same anxiety that, that these fanatics feel. You feel anxiety too. I do. I, I'll feel anxiety about things that, you know, some smart person disagrees and I'll be like, why does he think that? And I'll start, makes me uncomfortable. makes me a little anxious. Um, but the difference is that discomfort is for me to suffer, right? That discomfort that arises in me because it's messing with a belief that I have to assuage the existential angst, that discomfort is mine to bear. And I almost, and I wrote about this, I said, tolerance is basically pain tolerance. It's literally pain tolerance. It's like, I can take the pain of this anxiety, this angst, when my belief is challenged. And, and I have to, that's an open-minded person or earnest person who wants better information is going to have to just suffer getting his belief rugged or possibly rug pulled that to say, well, what if I'm wrong? Uh-oh, you know, and, and I might be wrong and, and I got to look into this and I, I got to feel the discomfort of possibly being wrong. And that's, that's the task. But the person who's the fanatic, when somebody else is uh, contrary views, dissident views is causing discomfort in them. They don't want to bear that discomfort. They want to eradicate the source, the trigger for the discomfort. And I do think it's, it's related to sort of the way society is now, like you feel a certain way and you think everybody needs to honor that. Your feelings have become sort of objective facts. Now your feeling is a subjective fact, right? If I feel mad or upset or whatever, that's just a fact and nobody can deny how I feel because it's a fact. But at the same time, I can't mandate someone recognize how I feel either. I mean, that's that's up to them how they want to deal with me. That's up to their, that's That's up to them. I don't have to say, well, I'm upset. I'm upset by you, by your presence or the shirt you're wearing and the thing you're saying. Well, they can modify their behavior as they see fit, but I have to deal with my own 
discomfort emotionally. And I think we're in a, in a place and you see this throughout society where, where no amount of emotional discomfort should be borne by the person having it. And I think it's precisely the opposite. I think actual physical infringement should not be borne by people, you know, violence, assault, things like that. But emotional discomfort should be borne. I should be, you know, a, a mature person says, okay, I, this view, this thing that I'm seeing makes me feel mad or angry or, or stressed out. Mostly it's stressed out, you know, an anxious. And I have to bear that because that's the price of freedom. That's the price of open discourse. That's the price of the marketplace of ideas. And you might think, well, no, these, these ideas are, are bad. Like the idea that you don't have to wear a mask or you're not wearing a mask around that. Oh, that's bad. That could, that could really stress people out. And that's, so I, I just think we're in a place where we we've gone too far. There have certainly been times and places and certainly for lots of different groups where, where people's feelings were completely ignored and dismissed and huge infringements on them physically, psychologically were done. And you want, you have to correct that. That's, that's a violation. At the same time, you want to overcorrect and make it so everybody's personal emotional discomfort is, you know, something that needs to be prevented. Sometimes somebody has a view that you don't have or that you and your in-group doesn't have and they don't agree about Pfizer's latest product and you just have to fucking deal with it. You fucking deal with it. And they have a different view than you and other people are going to have a different view with you on that. Some people don't agree I don't see any evidence that masking did anything at any point. That's my view. You have to deal with that. You can't shut me up about that. Now it's possible I'm wrong about that. And there'll be some new evidence that comes and persuasively shows otherwise. I haven't seen it. Doubt you've seen it either because I don't think it exists, but it could exist. It's certainly possible that it would exist, could be shown theoretically, of course. So then I would have to let go of my belief and I can't silence that. You know, let's say, the people who don't believe that masking is effective, quote, win. They take over Twitter. They take over the media. And now people who think masks work, now they're silenced. I don't think that's right. I think you should be able to make your case also. So I just think we're at a moment in time where it's, we, we've gone too far the other way. If I encounter views that I don't agree with, even that I find abhorrent, I can mute them. I can block. I don't have to read them. I don't have to subject myself to them. But I certainly have to live with their existence. And, it, and, it, and they're doing you a favor, right? So the dissidents, if, if I have a different view than you and you don't like it, it causes you discomfort. But at the same time, maximizing comfort, maximizing emotional comfort especially, uh, is not really the, the best way to live your life, right? That's probably a terrible way to live your life, maximizing for emotional comfort or minimizing emotional discomfort. Uh, if you want to adapt and survive in, the, in reality, exposing yourself to some emotional discomfort with the goal of finding out what's actually true is much better. And so if, I, if I'm a dissident or a dissenter, I have a dissenting view and you're exposed to it, you don't like it. Uh, I'm doing you a solid because you have a chance to find out something different, to find out what's true. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it turns out you're right. And then you'll even reinforce your correct view more. You know, this idea in society that you should try to minimize emotional discomfort in your life is, it's flawed. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible message. I try, you know, as a parent, I, I don't want my kid to have minimal emotional discomfort. If she feels bad, she should feel bad. If she has to suffer because she's unhappy about something, then let her suffer. It's okay. You know, of course, I'm going to take care of her health and well-being. But I think that well-being involves disappointment, suffering, uncertainty, angst part of being a human being. And 
there's a faction that just, it seems like they just don't want that. And they're willing to go to extreme lengths and cause a lot of harm in the real world to avoid it. So that's what I, uh, that's what I wrote about. That was one of them. I don't have to make this super long. Uh, I'm just really pissed. I, I, I'm having a good start to the uh, NFBC. I'm feeling pretty good about that. And I still don't have Acuna and Tatis in two leagues each coming back. And Acuna soon, Tatis not so soon. So I'm feeling pretty good about it. But in one league that I have a good team, put in my free agent moves on the NFBC. And I was like, oh, I have to get a pitcher. And I painstakingly made this long list. And I submitted it. And then this morning when I looked at the results, I was like, wait, why did I only get one list of free agents, not two? And none of the pitchers, which I needed more than the guy I got. And oh, I put the same drop for both lists. I had Art Warren dropped for both lists. And I, I had a drop. I think it was Nicky Lopez or somebody. And I just, for some reason, I copied it and I didn't switch the drop. And that's on me. I do think the NFBC software, which is the best by far, uh, should give you like an electric shock, like a testicular electric shock that says, hey, you've got got two. You sure you want two in the same one? Maybe I'll email them and tell them. But, it, you know, it's on me. It's my fault. But that would be a good like fail safe. So just to, just to finish out on something kind of fun. When I was on vacation, we drove out to this place where the apparently it's the world's longest suspension bridge. And it's uh, 500 meters, half a kilometer. And suspension bridge, I'm like, what's a suspension bridge? It's just like a word. And when you get there, you understand what a suspension bridge is. <laughs> it's a bridge that there's no pillar supporting. It's on, attached on one side, it's attached on the other, but the middle is sagging and there's nothing underneath. There's no you know, pillars supporting like most bridges that you've been on. You know, it's 70 meters up, about 220 feet and you got to cross and it's rickety and clackety and and the wind, it shakes, the wind blows it. <laughs> I wasn't that scared. I filmed it and I took pictures of it. Uh, my family was very scared. They did cross it both ways. Sasha was a little scared. Heather and her mom were very scared, but they did it. And Heather's mom was like, oh, I wouldn't have come here if I realized how crazy this is. It is pretty crazy. Like you're looking way down and, and you can see through the floor. It's just these metal slats. And I started making squid game jokes, not to give it away. And Heather, well, Sasha, we wouldn't let Sasha see squid game, but Heather uh, didn't think that was funny. Speaking of which, Sasha and I, like Sasha's always trying to be tough and when she was younger and we'd see like Halloween scary movies for kids, she's always like, oh, I want to watch a really scary movie with you. And I'd say, oh, you want to watch 28 Days Later? She'd be like, yeah. You know, and we'd joke about it. But of course, she was seven or eight. We we're going to watch that. But now she's 10. And I was like, oh, she can watch. Let's watch a horror movie. It'll be fun. And so I picked The Sixth Sense. And it's, I mean, for an adult, it's a little scary. Like there's some dead people that show up with like burnt faces or bloody skulls. And I have to say it terrified the shit out of her and Heather's mad at me and Sasha's not sleeping. And so I'm the bad guy, but I was trying to say like when I was nine, uh, I saw the Omen. We saw the Omen. Those are extremely traumatizing. I don't know if they would hold up now, but way, way more traumatizing when the nanny during Damien's third birthday party uh, puts the noose around her neck and jumps off the, the roof of the, of the house and smashes back to the window and hangs herself. That was some scary shit when she's possessed. He, I think he possesses the dog and the dog possesses her. But uh, that was some scary ass shit. Way scarier than Sixth Sense. So maybe it's not good to traumatize your kids the way you were traumatized. But I was definitely traumatized worse at a younger age. So we'll work on it. Maybe we'll wait on The Ring and on the 28 Days Later and The Shining and some of the other very scary horror movies. But all right, that's all I got. Till next time.